It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something with your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And a fucking platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but in the corner to put in a little secret devil, secret devil world in your own knees. See your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it in British life. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, the mysterious, the incredible, the beautiful Dr. Bones. Oh, wait a minute. Did beautiful. You, you said, You're the beautiful <laughs> one around beautiful. here. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're the brains, that. the bronze, and the beauty, and uh, I'm the old guy drooling on his shoes. You got me a tuna fish sandwich earlier. I did. So I can call I you did. the chef. You can call me that. Although I don't know if you're a chef if you make a tuna fish sandwich. Well, that might be more like just a cook. I'm the Subway guy. <laughs> hey, It out was there. very good, though. Thank it you. It was, absolutely. And I, you want me to tell them who I am? Uh, wait, first we have to welcome them to the but Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Dr. Hour. Bones. I did? Yes, you did. No way. Yeah, it's the oh beginning. Oh, my gosh. All right, anyway. You're listening to... The Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones Joel. and Nurse Amy. So tell them who you are first. Of doomandbloom.net where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And you are? I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are a nest of normality in a negative world. I don't know about how normal we are. but <laughs> Well, we are here. We do our best. That's right. And we are going to do our best to help you keep it together, even if everything falls apart, even if we're in times of trouble. You know, we're working on changing our format over the next few weeks so we don't have such a long housekeeping session before we get to the medical stuff. So please be patient with us. We are a work in progress. We've always been, and I guess we always will be. <laughs> I know, right? Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a perspicacious parrot? Wow, that's a word. Hey, you know, if you know the definition of perspicacious, you'll never have to prove your intelligence in any other way. You'll sound like a genius to everybody else around you. What does perspica- perspicacious mean? It means... I can't even say it. <laughs> well, perspicacious. It, it is a, I, I goofed, That's a long word. I goofed on it too. It means having a ready insight into and an understanding of things. If you're perspicacious, you are pretty hip. If you listen to this show, matter of fact, you'll certainly develop the ability to be perspicacious about medical things. At That's least. right. Anyhow, here's our disclaimer. 
and I'm not your attorney. <laughs> All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to please seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please, That's please, right. Please. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but hey, but don't think you can't save a life in bad times. You got to show the world you got more sense than a bag of bear poop and get the training <laughs> and education you need while you're at it. Why not get a quality medical kit as well? You need that. And there's no better place to get that quality medical kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equal kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues that you would face in any disaster. They would make pretty much everywhere you are safer, your home, your workplace, your school, even your church safer. And they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree. Our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. You want some proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Hey, you know, last week I marveled at the rare decision by the beautiful nurse Amy to get in front of the camera, finally, instead of making some <laughs> little old man do it. And you know what? Since then, she's gone camera crazy. She's done two more videos. On and that. a webinar. And a webinar, right? And a webinar. So we've been right. in front of that camera three times. That's right. And, in a week. And the two videos that you did for our YouTube channel, the DR Bones Nurse Amy, well... They're how-tos on two really versatile items, a SWAT tourniquet and that old standby, the triangular bandage. That's Last right. week, it was how to use the SAM XT tourniquet, That's right. which was newly approved by the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And our webinar was on how to stop bleeding. Yes, we'll talk about that in a second, but I want to talk about these two videos that they, our audience can watch anytime that they want. This is, I think, really important stuff Uh the SWAT tourniquet and the triangular advantage. Tell us a little bit about the videos and about these um, amazing items. Well, the first one we talked about um, recently was the triangular bandage. I think I did that on Sunday, and I had an assistant who happens to be sitting next to me who called himself the antique dummy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. <laughs> it's not a new mannequin, and it's an antique dummy. Yes. <laughs> It was very funny. Yeah, why should I spend money to get one of those plastic dummies when Templates I... Templates when you have... Uh, a real life... I don't want to call you a dummy. You're not, not a dummy. I am. I, I have a victim. I'll victim. call you my, my willing, my willing victim. Yes, I have a victim. Willing. I've been a fashion victim. But you're victim. willing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So... So what about You talked stuff? about the triangular bandage at first, and then we filmed... Seven different demonstrations on how to use these tourniquets, and that's just some of the stuff you mentioned. Others, oh yeah, that we didn't show. I mean, it's just an incredible multi-purpose the, item. And you remember so the ones tiny. you showed? I do. We supported an ankle, mm -hmm. held an ankle in place. We held on a Sam splint. We did an arm sling. We did a hand wound. We did a head wound, 
I already said we supported the ankle. Oh, okay. That I'm, was, I'm pointing that was the to, first thing. I'm pointing I said. to my ankle. Yeah. Because thinking that you had missed that one. I, I already said that one. So you you got the message. Though. <laughs> I ankle. did get the yes. message. Right. <laughs> we have a little code here that we're always you just, just point gesti- things out. Right. We're always gesticulating wildly at each other throughout <laughs> the entire show. Um. I can't remember what else. I said ah. ankle, ankle state. Wait, ankle state. Oh, wait, the eye. Did yes, you that? I did not mention eye the injury, eye. Head injury. That sure. would have been the sixth one. We did the head. I already said head. I can't remember the seventh one. Well, I guess you're well, just going to have to watch it'll, the video, guys. It'll be a surprise. That's right. <laughs> and sure enough, it is a versatile, lightweight, compact, affordable. Everybody has to have a few of these in their medical storage. Oh, you know, I just want to say one thing. One that we didn't talk about was somebody mentioned in the comments, which is really fun on the YouTube channel, is that, you know, we could present something. Obviously, I can't go over the thousand uses of a triangular bandage. It's just not possible. There probably is a thousand uses. But one comment that's on there is somebody said it makes a good fire starter. Yes, I would believe that. So, something we didn't even think about. That's right. It's not just using it um, as gauze. Oh, one of the other ones was uh, using it as a tourniquet. We MacGyvered a tourniquet. Yes, that was But it will also hold on gauze. Exactly. It it works as a lot of different things. But they talked about Firestarter. So, if you're watching the videos, please comment. It's a group share. You know, again, I can't make videos that are hours and hours long, although I will say the one I just put up on the SWAT tourniquet is 20 minutes long. Oh, my gosh. I apologize, folks. Well, watch some of it at least, guys. I just cannot forget anything. If I don't show you everything that I feel is pertinent, which I feel most things are pertinent, if I don't say it on the video, I can't go to sleep at night. Well, we could uh, do makes part me one crazy. and part two of things. You know, there's nothing that says that you can't do. But we part did one that once, and we three. asked folks if they'd prefer a longer video or things and segments. I remember that. And they said they per- just preferred the longer video, just to to see it all in one shot. So, folks, I talk about the tourniquet. I show it to you. I talk about the benefits, the disadvantages. I show you how to put it on one handed, which is a special trick I've never seen anyone put it on like I do. It's a trick that I learned just because I've been using this since it was invented. We met the guy who invented this. He was an army doctor. And yes. we met him at a show, and he just had a tiny little booth. And he's like, hey, I just came up with this tourniquet. And very nice guy. And I, that's the moment that I got it. And I, I, probably like six people had bought it at that point. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the first first ten probably that even had a SWAT tourniquet in their hand to to try it out. So I've been using it for many, many years. But I've I've learned how to do it with one hand. And that then takes we some do training. it with the, that it, takes that's some what training. I'm saying. It's it's a trick. Now they have I didn't demonstrate this on the video, but they have uh, picture instructions on H and H who actually bought the product from the original inventor. They own it now. They have a, a download that you can do and it shows you how to do one handed application and their technique is using your teeth. Your teeth. Now, I say wow. during the video, I don't demonstrate this because I didn't want to, like, stick this in my mouth. It seems a little strange. But if you're bleeding to death, 
You gotta save a life. There are stranger things that you might do to save your life. You're I mean, some right. crazy guy cut off his le- his arm because it was stuck in rocks. Yes, I remember that. You movie. know, a movie. I don't know, with like a pocket knife or something, some oh, ridiculous thing. I don't know. But you, you, so you'll do things in a life and death situation that you wouldn't normally think of doing. So they do show pictures of a teeth application where you're holding one end of it with your teeth. You start wrapping it around your limb, your arm. Obviously, if it's a leg, you're, it's two-handed. You only need to get it around once. So you one get it and around one, times, one and a half times or even sometimes sticks, two. Yeah. And it's got a, a texture on the material. Tacky sort of. Yeah, it's not sticky, but it's that material that causes friction, I would say. And that friction, if it's up against each other in a, in a even a semi-tight manner... It holds, so it won't slip off. When you let go with your teeth, you'll be able to now really get that tight. I show you during the video how you know you've gotten it tight enough. There's indications on the tourniquet itself visually. Plus, of course, you're looking for two things. The bleeding is stopped and the pulse is stopped. Those are the two ideal things that you want to look for. Um, and it's very versatile, just like the triangular yeah, bandage. It. it has a lot of things that it can do. It uh, can and I act sh- as a tourniquet, as you mentioned. And I do talk about those things and during the video. Good, good. And it can uh, serve. You can tell them what they'll see, and they might be interested <laughs> in seeing that. Uh, and also, it can stabilize splints. It can do a lot of a lot of things. And Amy's going to show even one or two other uses for it on the actual. So, mm-hmm. so right. definitely check that out. Uh, with regards to triangular bandages, another thing I like about those is that you can easily make a hundred of them, just getting get some old sheets and cut into a square uh, of, let's say, 40 inches by 40. And if you do that, if you cut it in half diagonally, then what you have is something that's about 40 by 40 by 56. That fits for most uses in most normal size people. You might want to make it a little longer in people who are uh, maybe heavier Mm -hmm. or or more have more girth to them. So those are things that are important. Uh, And also these bandages that you make, uh, of course, the ones I think are that we have are sterile. They start off sterile. I think they do. What, the triangular bandages? Mm-hmm. No. No, they don't. Okay. No, triangular bandages are not sterile. Not sterile. So they're no. not, meant, not meant to be sterile, but in a pinch they can be used to place as a barrier as you're trying to put pressure on a bleeding wound. But if you go back to the Civil War and what they were doing with bandages is they were using white cotton sheets and they were boiling them. Right. Yes, and that was about to say. Getting as close as they could. Now, if you have a pressure cooker, that that's even going to get cleaner inside. I wouldn't call it 100% sterile, but, you know, you're sterilizing as much as you can the the bandages. So then, yes, I would say it would be appropriate to be able to pack them inside a wound for long periods of time. There you but go. at least cover wounds. If you have accumulated sterile gauze, that's what you're going to have in direct contact with the wound. And then pretty much anything that's clean can be used to hold it in place. So... You can clean these bandages, triangular bandages, in boiling water or, Absolutely. or in your pressure per- cooker perfectly fine to, way to you know, sterilize keep them. them clean and almost sterilized. The problem is as soon as you open the sterilizer, bacteria floats in and now, oh. it's, not, now it's not 100% sterilized. You are a cosmic downer. Well, when I worked in the CSR department, we used to have to go pick up the instruments that were dirty. This is the first hospital job I had 
when I first started nursing school, I had to work through nursing school to be able to um, eat, <laughs> eat and, and drive to school. And that was my first job. And what we do is we had special packages and there were indicators inside the packages. And we would seal those after we scrubbed and cleaned the instruments from all the, the gunk. They're put in those packages and then they're put into a special autoclave which had a door that locked and there was super heated steam inside of that and that's what actually sterilized them but when we opened it up they were sealed in a package so they weren't exposed to air so that's how those instruments stay sterile because they're sealed in the process of being sterilized if you're doing this with instruments in in a pressure cooker as soon as you open the top they're not technically sterile anymore because they're exposed to air. Oh, foo. That's uh, look. Say so, because almost yeah, a clean it's environment is as good as you're gonna get in that's survival what I settings. And, I know. I and that's that. why they call this a survival medicine. Or we're not calling it the sterile environment uh, <laughs> trauma hospital hour. I know intensive care unit hour. Or right, oh, and I, you did mention our webinar. We had a great time. We had what like 450 people sign up for it. Yeah, just tons of people in the chat room. Thank you so much if you were one of the people that came in to say hi. We have we gave away some door prizes, which uh, we're going to be sending out next week as well. So I hope that uh, people got to see that. It's very important to know how to stop bleeding. We did it in conjunction with the National Stop the Bleed Day, the second yep. one ever, and. You know, in these days of active shooters and things like that, and anybody, even in good, good times or bad times, should know how, at least the basics of how to stop bleeding. Right. We talked a little bit about the nature of blood, what causes blood to clot, how to help it clot, <laughs> and the supplies that we want you to have. Of course, you can get all those supplies at our store at store.doomandboom.net. Hey, do you have a nugget of knowledge in your noggin that you'd like to share with the class? Well, feel free to contact contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, Nurse Amy, do, or our, our page called Doom and Bloom. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones, Nurse Amy. Remember to sign up for our RSS feed so you don't miss any of our content because you might need to save a life in times of trouble. You might be the highest medical asset left. So just go to the upper right of the main page at doomandbloom.net and sign up and you will not miss any of our videos, podcasts, or articles. And by the way, did I mention you can find some of our articles in great magazines like American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, and Backwoods Home. And our books, just to mention them very quickly, our Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition, 700 pages, 150 medical topics, all about off-the-grid medicine. And our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Well, last week we talked about uh, when to close the wound and when to leave it open. And we also talked about some of the least invasive ways that you can close. By that, I mean how to put the least number of additional holes in someone when there's an open wound to deal with. And there are several methods that we, we talked about. Uh, we talked about uh, the non-invasive methods last week, uh, tapes and glues. They make sense for a number of different reasons. They're less painful for the patient, number one, to put in. 
uh, other than sticking a needle in them, right, or a staple in them, it's certainly less painful to put tape on or, or to glue a wound shut. Unlike sutures or staples, they don't cause those additional punctures in the skin, less risk for infection as a result. Uh, materials are less expensive. You can get a whole lot of those for what it would cost to get a few stapler kits or suture kits. And in a survival setting, more advanced closure materials like sutures and staples, if you think about them, they're not, not going to be manufactured anymore because something has happened and it's pretty much the end of the modern era. So your supply is going to be limited to whatever you happen to have. So you right. better use them only when they're absolutely necessary. The easiest ones to use, Steri-Strips, I think. These are adhesive bandages, which adhere on each side of the wound. You pull it together. Uh, they don't require puncturing the skin. They fall off on their own over time. You can even use duct tape to fashion some uh, type of, types of Steri-Strip type closures. Uh, you get some tincture of benzoin. That's sort of a glue-like material that apply, you apply to the skin on each side of the laceration before applying the tapes, and they probably stay on even when they're wet. And then, of course, we talked about uh, glues. There's a special medical glue called Dermabond, Surgiseal, and others, some of which are by prescription only. These are sort of expensive, but they are medical-grade adhesives that, that are meant for use on human skin. They create an environment that speeds healing, and they decrease the risk of infection uh, with bacteria, especially things like staph. And so if you don't have it over a, a joint or or an area that is getting a lot of movement, that these are things that you might consider. Don't use these inside the oral cavity, though. Inside the mouth, they're not, it's not appropriate. Um, the good thing about these is that they actually decrease infection, so you do not have to put, matter of fact, it's bad to put antibiotic ointment on most of these wound closures with glue. So do not use antibiotic ointment because it will degrade the glue itself. So that, that's a bad thing. Now, some have recommended, of course, household superglue for wound closure. This is a little bit different chemically. Both uh, medical and superglue and industrial superglue are cyanoacrylates, but just slightly different in chemistry. Uh, they might cause skin irritation in some people, uh, and you have to realize that it may not hold up to being wet as well. It might not last as long as the prescription version. Of course, it's a lot cheaper. And if it's what you got, you may choose to use it. You can test, by the way, for allergic reactions by simply putting a tiny bit of superglue on the on inside of your forearm, maybe, and observe for a rash over the next 24 hours or so. If you don't get a rash, you probably can use it safely. Uh, so these are things that are important to know, but I want to talk about sutures and staples, where we'll get to that in just a minute. You know, when it comes to survival and being prepared, we got to know the must-have items. And one of those that immediately come to mind are a complete medical kit and a bug-out bag. But our friends at Gold Wealth Management remind us to have our bug-out bank in place as well. Your bug-out bank should include some physical gold and silver along with three months of living expenses in cash. Call Gold Wealth Management to get a free education about investing in gold and silver. At current prices, the gold and silver market is on sale. Call 866-GLD-SLVR. That's 866 866- G-L-D-S-L-V-R, uh, that's otherwise known as 866-453-7587. Let's talk a little bit about sutures and staples. There are wounds that require a more durable closure. I mentioned that if they're over a joint, that sutures and staples will be more effective suture, uh, closure methods. They'll give a strong support to a healing wound. And 
Of course, they should only be used when lesser, lesser methods won't work for the reasons that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. And we're probably asked to teach suturing more than any other first aid procedure, even though it really isn't first aid at all. Uh, it is, however, a handy skill to have. You're going to be the highest medical asset left in times of trouble. So this is something that's important. Now, stapling a wound closed, that's fairly straightforward for the person holding the stapler, at least. Uh, suturing is best done if somebody has had some experience doing it. You don't get that kind of experience in your typical first responder class, I have to say. Now, wilderness medical training teaches you to stabilize and transport patients to modern facilities as soon as you possibly can. But in survival scenarios, wound closure, well, that becomes the responsibility of the medic at the scene or medic for the group. So you have to have the knowledge to be able to function effectively in a long-term setting, and that means learning how to close wounds. But it's not just about how to throw a stitch. You can Almost anybody can do that, and it's even easier to place a staple. It's about developing the judgment as to when a wound should be closed and when it shouldn't, plus the skill to know which closure method to use. Remember that most wounds in survival settings are going to be dirty and contaminated, so closing a wound that should be left open, that's going to cause a lot more trouble than doing regular open wound care. Now, we're going to talk about open wound care in a future show. Let's talk a little bit about staplers. Now, staplers, they were originally developed more than 100 years ago, as a matter of fact, and their first purpose was to attach loose ends of intestines together. And they're still used for that purpose in modern operating rooms. There are certain gadgets they have that automatically put the staples in and put the intestines together. But a practical standpoint is, well, you're only going to be using them to close skin. And why? And that's because the special materials and the special staple guns for intestines, well, they cost hundreds of dollars each, maybe even more than that. And if you've got somebody with their guts not intact in an off-grid setting, oh boy, you don't have a lot of hope for survival. That's a hard reality. You're probably going to do more damage opening a belly up to try to look for guts that aren't connected. Now, here's a quandary. How do you figure out whether someone has tears in their intestines from, say, a gunshot wound? This could be a pretty small hole. could be a small entry wound. It might right. not be an exit wound. How do you know if there are contents flowing into the abdomen if you're completely off the grid, living in a cave, basically just have the very basics? And let's and I'll tell you what. what? I'll give you a hint. Yes. You got an onion. Ooh. <laughs> Yakadoodles. I know what you're talking about. That's right. This is a technique that's used by the Vikings. What you do is you have the victim drink some onion soup. After a period of time, what they do is they, the Vikings would smell Besides near the Besides having a stomach ache. Yes. Well, <laughs> from the onion soup. Well, you, you, you probably were or, stabbed in the stomach. Or if, this, if you happen to have in your survival supplies some canned French onion soup. Oh, there you go. Okay. See, that, that right. could actually be a possibility of someone having in their storage. Now, after a period of time, you smell near the open wound in the belly, and if you smell an onion odor coming from the wound, well, you probably have intestines that have been torn open. Very sad. Okay, what I, I digress here. Back to sutures and, sutures and staples. Now, staples look and act much like office staples. They work by pinching the skin edges of a laceration together. And like office staples, a separate instrument called the staple remover is used to remove them. My dad actually had one of these on his desk that reminded me of a snake's head with fangs on the top and bottom of the jaws of them. Uh, they're called mandibles. So staples, very easy to do, very quick. 
Sutures, perhaps the most versatile method, however, for serious wounds. Today's sutures are comprised of a string that's attached onto the end of a needle. That's called swaging, and they're made of different types of material. Um, you need more knowledge and time and training to really get good at placing sutures rather than staples, which can be really is almost unskilled labor. Let, okay, so let's talk about sutures. We first started wearing clothes probably about 170,000 years ago. We learned to make needles from bones and antler soon afterwards, and so it made sense to prehistoric people. If they could sew hides together to make clothing, you probably could sew together their own hides, right? That's right. If it was necessary. And so we see all these needles that uh, were made from antler and bone that are up to 50,000 years old, but we first see suturing documented and actual sutures in Egyptian mummies about 5,000 years ago. And the Greeks and Romans, they had their own types of sutures. They used copper needles and silk or, or hair or animal sinew or flax. In live people, there was actually a physician called Galen, G-A-L-E-N, who stitched together severed tendons and ligaments in gladiators and sometimes was even successful in restoring some function to a damaged extremity. So anyhow, these things are pretty important to know about and you should have the ability to perform some of these procedures. But when should you use one method over another? Staples are useful in any situation where the laceration is relatively straight and that only the skin needs to be closed. Sutures should be used for deep layers of tissue and lacerations that are zigzag, weird, wild, and irregular in appearance. So the thing about sutures is that they can be used on skin or deep layers, but at staples, the standard ones that you're going to use, they'll be used for skin closure only. Uh, sutures best for jagged lacerations. Staples best for straight line cuts. Suturing you can perform by yourself, but to really do a good job on staples, you actually need an assistant holding together the cut ends of the skin of the lacerations so that you can staple them together. Uh, you have lots of different materials, lots of different types of needles to choose from with regards to suturing, but it's much more time consuming. However, even though there are a few choices with regards to staples, either standard or large, you can accomplish the whole procedure very, very quickly. So quickly you're going to be tempted to always use that, even though it may not be the appropriate thing. You do need special instruments to place and remove, to not only place, you need a staple gun, but you also need to remove them, a staple remover, similar to what my dad had to remove staples in his office. But sutures, well, any scissors can be used to remove them. Or if you use absorbable sutures, uh, no removal at all is necessary. And we're going to be talking next week about types of suture materials and how to make certain decisions with regards to those. Now I want to get to this week's guest. You know, occasionally we have the honor of a mention in books that are of benefit or interest to the preparedness community. We have authors like James Wesley Rawls, Franklin Horton, A.J. Powers, Patrick Shire, Charlie Hogwood to thank for including us in some of their fiction and nonfiction. By the way, look for me and Amy as Dr. Welby and Nurse Clara in Charlie Hogwood's <laughs> latest book, the unraveling, the unraveling, available on Amazon. Follow their efforts to survive. Certainly going to be some interesting twists and turns in Charlie's upcoming books, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but today we're proud to add another author with huge potential to do you some good out there who's been kind enough to give us a mention in his book, Joe Ordia and his wife, Rachel, founders of PEG Solar and the brand new book, Built to Survive, how we designed and built a sustainable, secure, and survivable custom home. 
Joe and Rachel Ordia founded PEG, Preparedness Experts Group, in 2012 with a mission to increase the energy independence of mankind by providing top-tier renewable energy solutions. But without further ado, here's Joe Ordia. Hey, Joe, you there? Yeah, Dr. Bones, how are you doing? I am doing awesome. How about you today? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for having me on. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, you know what? Solar energy is on the mind of pretty much everybody who's concerned about the uncertain future. But let's talk first about your journey on the road to preparedness. Are you one of those folks that was raised in a log cabin in the middle of the wilderness, uh, ate a lot of possum and stuff like that? <laughs> no, no, actually quite quite the opposite, quite the opposite, Joe. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the city, and um, I grew up in, I guess, what you'd call a very sort of mainstream uh, mainstream household, uh, went to college, uh, started my career, and uh, really began my career working as a, uh, a military contractor, uh, working on uh, software and high-tech uh, computer software and networks. So that's kind of kind of how I started. Um, but uh, uh, as I began to do more and more research, uh, particularly into our, our financial system and our banking system, uh, I was very concerned with the amount of money that the government was spending, um, the deficit spending to support the war effort in particular. And I began to ask questions like, you know, where is all this money coming from? If the country is $10 trillion in debt, that money had to come from somewhere. And so my sort of journey towards preparedness and self-sufficiency really started with studying uh, money and, and banking and the, the financial system. And I sort of fell down the rabbit hole of the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve banking and came to the conclusion that, you know, our economic system is really based on a, uh, uh, a set of lies that we all have kind of agreed to play by, but that fundamentally we're really on very, very shaky ground financially. And if we all woke up one day and decided that, you know, we were no longer willing to trade our goods and services or sell our labor for U.S. dollars, then we were going to be in a world of trouble, and I wanted to be prepared, uh, first off, in the event of a, uh, um, a currency collapse and a uh, hyperinflation. So that's kind of how I got started. So is that what you think our future holds for us, uh, some kind of economic collapse? I mean, things are certainly not hunky-dory, but, but are we going to hell in a handbasket? What's your take on it? <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's a great question, and it's tough because I've actually, since I've, I've been a, uh, a professional prepper, if you want to call it that, I don't think I can recall a time where confidence uh, was as high as it is right now. Um, the economy feels good. Uh, employment is high. Uh, wages are up. Home prices are up. The stock market's up. And um, although you know, fundamentally, uh, I know that, you know, over the long, uh, long enough timeline, all fiat currencies eventually return to their intrinsic value, which is zero. Uh, that may or may not happen here in the near future. So it's, it's, hard, it's hard to tell. Um, I would caution folks that we may be in uh, the calm before the storm. And although things do feel more secure, more stable, and more optimistic uh, than they have over the past six to eight years, um, a lot of the same fundamental risks and threats are still there. And so I, I would encourage people, and we continue to take steps um, little by little to increase our preparedness. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I see a decrease in the interest in preparedness since the 2016 election. I think it's a big mistake. I and mean, I, I think that you're going to see in the next couple of years as we 
approach the next election, a lot more interest in preparedness and certainly dependent on the results of that election. I think it will be perhaps an explosion of interest in preparedness simply because of concerns about the uncertain future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I think it's a very exciting time to be part of the truth movement or the liberty movement, if, you, if you'd like to call it that. But on the other hand, I've never seen it before where uh, a lot of these progressive and socialist ideals really seem to be taking root, particularly with millennials, um, that don't really seem to have a sense of what, what American individualism was, was all about and what, you know, what made us unique and one of the greatest countries in history. And I'm, I'm afraid that uh, if we don't really get serious about preserving that part of our culture, we, we may lose it. I agree with you 100%. You know what? James Wesley Rawls wants everybody to move to Idaho. Like, that's not something that's possible for everybody to do. So what led to your decision to be where you are? And what's your advice to people with regards to decision-making about location? You do mention, uh, have a chapter on it in your book. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because, you know, like yourself, I, I've, uh, I've read most of uh, James Wesley Rawls books and I think he's a great expert in terms of preparedness and preparedness theory. And he does advocate that, that sort of, you know, Northwest, uh, I believe he calls it the, the great American readout is one of the, one of the strategically safest places to be in the country. However, I, I think a move like that for many of us would require a total commitment to preparedness at the expense of family ties, uh, career ties, and so forth. And that simply was not something that my wife and I were prepared to do. Um, at the time that we had gotten serious about our family preparedness, we had just recently gotten married. I just started our family. Our first daughter was born not, you know, not uh, too long there before. And we really felt a need that we wanted to be closer uh, to her family in particular so that we could have some, some guidance and some support as uh, new young parents. And so we didn't want to be far away from everybody else. We wanted to be closer to family. Uh, we did choose to move away from the Washington, D.C. metro area, where I had been working as a government contractor, uh, very simply because the population density was just too high and there were just too many military targets. I mean, at one point I lived literally right down the road from the Pentagon, and I think that was you know, a little bit too high risk of an area. So we decided to move a couple hours south down to the Richmond, Virginia, Central Virginia area where we could be closer to my wife's parents and uh, still have a local economy that was uh, successful and, and offered some employment opportunities for us as well. What's your advice with regards to location for other people? So, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the, the prevailing preparedness thought would be, well, I, I want to be as far away from everybody else as I can when the stuff hits the fan. Um, however, again, for most people, it's not really practical to be completely isolated uh, because usually they are uh, not willing to completely abandon family ties or, you know, access to jobs. Most of the jobs are still in the cities. And so instead of moving to a completely remote location, what we decided to do was move to the outer suburbs or just bordering on the rural areas uh, of our um, uh, of our location so that we were close enough to town that we could get in for shopping and for community involvement. You know, our kids are in school. We were active participants in our church. 
Uh, we need, of course, like anybody, to be able to go grocery shopping and things of that sort. So we want it to be close enough that we can access those services, but also far enough away that we could have a home and a home site that was safe if we did have to sort of stay out here and hunker down uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, we were in a safe place where we could do that, and it was more more sparsely populated than the city or the close-in suburbs. So that's what we chose to do. You're a wise man, Georgia. Your book, Built to Survive, How We Designed and Built a Sustainable, Secure, and Survivable Custom Home, has a lot about using solar power to improve survivability and sustainability in good times or bad. Why write a book like Built to Survive? Well, we, we knew that we were doing something truly unique with this. And we also knew that, like many in the preparedness community, a lot of times it can be overwhelming. When you start to study all of the different threats that are out there and all the different sort of doomsday scenarios that could come to pass, it's very, very easy to get overwhelmed. Um, the other thing that I, I, I found challenging was, especially if you watch some of these prepper TV shows and things, uh, you might get the impression that one has to have several hundred thousand dollars uh, available to dedicate to a preparedness construction project to even be able to get started. And what I wanted to do was give folks a practical guide that they could follow with little or no out-of-pocket cost to take steps to establish a more self-sufficient household. So what Built to Survive is all about is it's our story of how my wife and I designed and built a custom home and how we were able to structure the project and particularly how we were able to finance the project so that it had little or no cost compared to if we had just purchased a traditional home. And so that, that's what the book is about. It's, it's, uh, it's largely a technical book about energy and systems and self-sufficiency with respect to energy, but it's all presented against the backdrop of our own story going through that process ourselves. But isn't solar power really expensive to put together in a home? Are, are there different types of solar energy systems? Uh, how can the average person possibly afford to put together this kind of system? That's a great question. So solar power, there is some cost to it. However, the thing that has really been a game changer in the last couple of years is that we are now able to structure the financed purchase of a solar power system in a way that your monthly payment for a self-contained solar electric system would be no more than just continuing to pay your regular monthly electric bill. What we essentially can offer through our lending partners is a solar mortgage. They don't call it that, but that's essentially what it is. A long-term loan, either 10, 15, or 20 years, where the monthly uh, service, the monthly payment on that solar financing is covered by the savings that you realize on your electric bill. So if you live in an area like I do, where your electric company allows you to con connect a solar energy system and you can sell your excess solar back to them during the daytime, to cover what you have to purchase at nighttime, then you're actually able to make the conversion to solar energy with zero out-of-pocket cost and zero impact on your monthly budget. You basically trade out your traditional electric bill for a monthly solar finance payment, which should pay for itself from the very, very outset. It's something that I think a lot of people have thought about. It's sort of on everybody's wish list. They just haven't gotten to the point where they have enough money to to actually put this together, but it's cool that you have these partners that are able to provide this type of financing, especially over a long period of time. 
Right, and that, that really is, is the game changer. When I first got into the industry about six, seven years ago, you know, there were the traditional financing options available for home improvement loans. But typically the maximum term that you could get with that type of financing was five to seven years. And the interest rates were, were higher than a traditional mortgage interest rate. Well, now that the solar energy industry and the technology has had an opportunity to mature, banks are looking at it and they realize that solar energy is a predictable, bankable power source that they are willing to finance over a longer term and at more favorable interest rates so that now the acquisition of a solar power system is, is within the financial reach of just about any homeowner. And the reason, you know, the reason that this is important, Joe, is, of course, because, you know, one of the biggest necessities that we have for a modern lifestyle is energy. You know, we use energy for our communications, for our work. We use it for medical equipment. We use it, in my case, to be able to pump fresh water out of the ground and to be able to pump wastewater up and away from the house. Uh, so, you know, energy powers all those things. And if you're still dependent on a public utility, to provide that energy to you, then I would say, you know, you're not, you're, you're not in a very uh, sustainable position there. In Built to Survive, Joe, you mentioned some things that you should do before putting together and installing a solar system. Can you go over some of those? Sure. You already touched on location, and I advise people to really look at a location that's going to be a safe place that you can hunker down for an extended period of time if you need to. Uh, it's far, far better for you to be in a safe place when the event happens than for you to have to try to evacuate <clears throat> or fight your way to a safe location uh, when all hell is breaking loose around you. So number one is be in a safe place. Number two is before looking at putting solar energy on the house, you want to look at what can you do to minimize the amount of electrical energy that the home needs. You know, solar energy, although it's more affordable now, it's not free. And you actually will get a much better return in terms of your finances and your self-sufficiency if you can design the house to minimize the amount of electrical energy needed before throwing a lot of solar energy capacity at the project. One of the best ways to do that is to, is to do all of your heating with an alternate fuel source. And in our case, we chose to invest in a 1,000 gallon underground propane storage capacity. And we're able to utilize that to heat the home for hot water and cooking. So that way, if we do end up in a grid down situation where we're running on solar power only during the day and battery power only at nighttime, I'm still able to enjoy creature comforts like cooking a hot meal, taking a hot shower, and uh, keeping the house warm, you know, for my wife and for the kids without having to use a lot of electrical energy to do that. Now, let's see, you also mentioned things like getting uh, LED bulbs, making sure that you do everything possible to decrease the amount of stress, I guess, on your solar system. There are three different types of energy systems that you mentioned can power home independent of the utility. You have, I think, systems that could just reduce or eliminate the energy uh, electric bill and you have hybrid systems which would you prefer what we chose to do was the hybrid system which which is essentially a, a, a system that is able to operate both off the grid standalone is able to operate on the grid for taking advantage of selling power back to the power company to maximize your financial savings so just to, to quickly cover the three types of solar power systems are off the grid Number two is grid tied, where you tie into the power company. And then number three is hybrid system, which is basically 
a system that can operate in both modes. The reason we chose to install the hybrid system is we wanted the full off-grid self-sufficiency for our emergency preparedness, but we also wanted the ability to take advantage of selling power back to the power company so that my savings on my electric bill paid for the cost of my solar equipment. That way I was able to achieve the self-sufficiency and preparedness I wanted without it really costing me anything out of pocket. What's your advice as to some essentials like hot water, refrigeration, sanitation, cooking, things like that, uh, things you'll face when the standard electrical grid is down? Right, right. Well, I mean, a, a simple exercise one might run is flip the main breaker on your house and try to survive a weekend. See what, what things that you really have been uh, dependent on electricity to provide for you so that you can start preparing for and getting a plan in place for being able to provide those things for yourself, either with, you know, an alternate means of doing it or with a, a backup power system that can provide that energy when you need it. In, in our case, the things that we need electricity for is, number one, is our electric well pump. In order for us to get fresh water out of the ground, we need electrical energy to run that pump, to pump that water up 400 feet into our bladder tank. Uh, we also need electricity to keep the refrigerator and freezers going so that we can keep our food from going bad. And then beyond that, you know, we have additional creature comforts like, you know, showers and television and things of that sort. But your absolute most basic necessities are going to be water and food. And so at a bare minimum, you want to be able to have fresh water and keep your food from going bad uh, with a self-contained power source. I would advise that to be your first step when looking at designing a system. What would be your plan for personal defense, and how does your electrical grid or your, sol your solar power supply help you? That's a great, great question. So, you know, one of the things that we invested in here at our home is a perimeter security system. So we have 360-degree uh, video coverage of the property. If, you know, anybody is approaching us from any direction, we can pretty much see that. And we've already walked through the property during the, the design construction phase with security experts to identify where all the vulnerable points are so that we can make sure that our security plan covers them. Um, beyond that, you know, my wife and I do own firearms, and we believe that a prepared household should not only have firearms, but should have the proper training to know how to use them and to practice as regularly as your, as your schedule allows so that you're proficient with that skill if you need to call upon it to use it um, in a time of crisis. However, let me say this. I think it's far better for your preparedness if you can set yourself up to be in a location where you're much less likely to have to use physical violence or lethal force than to plan to be, uh, you know, the Lone Ranger or Rambo out there, you know, shooting your way to safety. I, I don't think that's a, a realistic plan for most people. I think it's also important to have some support from the community, a group of people that are willing to give each other mutual assistance. I'll tell you that being alone, uh, you might indeed survive, but it would be a miserable existence. It's, it takes a village, as they say. I agree. I agree. And, you know, just in my neighborhood here, it's not a very large neighborhood. We have about 44 homes in total. And there are two doctors, two nurses, um, you know, myself here, and we've got um, a diversity of skills and experience here in the neighborhood. Um, one of the the things that I decided to do with our approach to preparedness is I really, I really did want to be public and I want it to be relatable. Um, I know that there, there are many of us in the community that, that think that maximum 
privacy and security is the way to go. In other words, don't tell anybody what you have. Don't tell anybody what you're doing. You know, pretty much just keep your head down and keep to yourself. And I can see the temptation to take that approach because, you know, you, you never know. You never know what your neighbors might do or, or what somebody else might, might, uh, might want to do to you. But I think that the, the right thing to do and, and what's going to be in not only in our best interest but in everyone's best interest is to really be open and honest about why we've chosen to do the things that we've done with our homes in the hopes that many of our neighbors might follow suit and be able to uh, put some things into place to create a more prepared household for themselves. So that if and when the event does happen, you know, we're not the only ones sitting out here like a sore thumb with uh, the ability to keep the lights on and kind of keep our, our lifestyle going. I'd rather uh, have them be as self-sufficient as possible as well. And, uh, and we were willing to, to share what we did in, in hopes that they would follow suit. Imagine a community that's actually built and prepared to survive a disaster and to thrive in the long run, that would be an amazing, an amazing thing. I love your book, Built to Survive, How We Designed and Built a Sustainable, Secure, and Survivable Custom Home. What's in the future for you and PEG Solar, and how can our listeners connect with you and get your book? Yeah, Joe, thanks, thanks for asking that. So the book is Built to Survive, and it is available now on Amazon. We have a hardcover, paperback, and uh, Kindle uh, electronic version available. Um, you can also follow along on our YouTube channel. If you go to youtube.com slash PEG solar, or just uh, search PEG solar on YouTube, uh, we have a lot of great educational videos up there about how solar energy works and uh, various aspects of how to operate and get the most out of uh, your renewable energy system. Um, as far as the future, I think you're going to see the adoption of this technology is really going to take off. You know, there are people out there like myself that are preparing for potential long-term scenarios, but I think you're also going to see a lot more uh, mainstream households that are preparing for more routine scenarios like natural disasters, hurricanes, you know, things of that sort. And solar energy with battery storage, in my view, is far superior than a traditional fuel-burning generator, particularly because once the system is up and running, it is truly sustainable. So you're not dependent on the fuel company to have to re, you know, reload your fuel tank, and there's no moving parts to break down. So you don't have to do all the oil changes and engine maintenance and all those headaches that come with a traditional standby generator. Solar with battery storage solves that problem, and it solves the problem in a way that it can pay for itself in the form of monthly electric bill reduction. So you get the double benefit of emergency preparedness and uh, reducing your monthly electric costs. So I think you're going to see adoption really take off in the next 10 years. Again, how can our listeners connect with you? Where can they get a copy of your book, Built to Survive? Yep, so Built to Survive, it's available now on Amazon. Uh, also be sure to follow us on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash solar, and also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PEG solar. Joe Ordia, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And I think you're doing a great service for people. And uh, I hope everyone gets a copy of your book. Dr. Bones, thanks for having me on. I wish you guys all the success. Thank you for what you're doing. And same to you. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. 
Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page.